0: Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and
1: do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
0: I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do.
1: Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done.
0: You're in that zone. And it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything
1: clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't, shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that, that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias.
0: This is Jody Martel. This is Chi-Yun.
1: This is Dick Vitale, and you listen to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American Dream. We all reach turning points that lead us one way or another. Some are cloaked in the subtlety of everyday life. In most cases, you don't realize one moment is all that important until you can see it from the perfect vision of the future, gazing back into the past. Paul Bear Bryant, the legendary football coach, often reminded his players that most games are decided by three or four plays. But you never know when those three or four plays are coming. Life is often like a football game. Most of us go about our daily lives never considering how a single event can send us veering off in a completely different direction, as if old Doc Brown had engaged his all-powerful flux capacitor. Perhaps it's the result of tragedy. Perhaps it's a chance encounter with that special person. Sometimes it is a collision with a cause that suddenly gives our life new meaning and purpose. This week's guest understands all too well. One night many years ago, he went to the movies with his wife, and everything changed. Join me on a road trip to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, The Wall with Jan Scruggs, the man who built it. My father, great-grandfather,
0: and and who knows how long this goes back, have been, were born uh, in Alabama, as was my mother. Uh, They were in Gadsden and Alabama City and Birmingham, and uh, I made a few trips to Alabama. But during World War II, I was born in 1950, by the way, during World War II, they moved here to get government jobs, they had to get out of the mills and everything like that. And, and uh, so they came to Washington, and my, they couldn't believe the money they were making. as a cab driver. My mother was a waitress. They would come home sometimes and just throw these dollar bills up in the air. They, this is unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, they were very happy. My mother quit high school, or I'm sorry, quit school in the eighth grade during the Depression because... Uh, one of the little girls next to her had brought in a banana, and she could just smell the banana, and she hungry, and so she picked peas and cotton. She just quit school and picked peas and cotton for a dollar fifty a day or something like that during the depression, and was able to <laughs> to eat and live well. So we're humble people and all that, but uh, I come from a very great family of uh, hardworking uh, people who. Uh, had a lot of good qualities.
1: What did you learn about the value of hard work and where it would take you from your parents?
0: I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from my brothers. I learned a lot from a lot of people, but persistence, 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 the courage to have a dream, the smartness to get the right team involved. And it's all about persistence and courage to me. Never quitting, never quitting, pulling back,
1: reorganizing, and then charging forward again. You grew up in Maryland, and something traumatic happened when you were 14.
0: Yeah, my mom and dad, they uh,
1: they just could not get along. They were just like salt and pepper,
0: and they got divorced. And uh, uh, I think I became uh, kind of misbehaving a little bit in school, etc., but... Uh, that kind of set me up for deciding what I was going to do because really at age 18, I pretty much was gonna be on my own. Didn't know what I was gonna do, but in the 12th grade, I decided I was gonna become a paratrooper and fight in the Vietnam War and then take the easy way by getting a two-year enlistment with selective service. And we see these kids riding down the road in their motorcycle and, and you know, they, they think they're bulletproof. I found out I wasn't bulletproof. But uh, I was more than uh, kind of excited to go there and, you know, be a part of a a war, you know, just like you'd seen on television, John Wayne and all that. Well, I certainly saw some action in terms of getting hit with mortars within the first 10 days, but I never uh, had a chance to really fire and fight back until May 27 and May 28, and that's when we were in... Some pretty heavy combat, taking casualties, and uh, it was a pretty unpleasant experience. I didn't really care for it. Tell me about those two days, if you would. Well, the first day, we had a a fellow named uh, Claude Van Andel from uh, Nebraska. Just a great fellow. He'd been drafted. He was a sergeant, and he was a good leader. And he, uh, they had shot at a North Vietnamese soldier. The guy had missed him and uh, he had ran back in the jungle, and Claude Van Andel took point, <clears throat> point position because he knew he knew what to do. And they, they had a, a, a big uh, claymore mine, a bomb basically sitting in a tree, and when he got next to it, they blew it up and blew him all to bits and shot uh, one of our medics in the eye. The other one was shot in the throat. So, you know, we only had one medic left, and, uh, <clears throat> they uh, they just kept firing very accurately at us, and uh, uh, we called in some helicopters and artillery, and finally the engagement broke off, and uh, it was pretty scary. But that night, I figured, you know, uh, I don't think we I'm I'm, I'm going to get I just know I'm going to get shot today because they are everywhere. <laughs> And these guys are very skilled. I mean, these are marksmen. And uh, so I took my army poncho and I put it behind my pistol belt. And I, I will tell you, I'm the only guy in Vietnam who did that. There's something you only do in basic training. I said, if I get hit back there, this will stop the bullet or the shrapnel or slow it down. And. Uh, Why didn't you put it over your heart? <laughs> I just knew I was going to get hit right back there. And uh, it was easier to, you know, kind of put it right behind your pistol belt too. So uh, some shooting starts and uh, I'm laying in the middle of a little pathway and I decided to get behind a tree. And as I did, the, the place I was standing turned into a hole about four, four feet across and maybe eight, eight inches deep. So they kind of had me targeted. So I got behind this tree and started firing. And some other guys started firing. And then they, uh, we were on the wrong side of the tree, unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, we, we all got hit and uh, one guy panicked. Uh, the other, other guy, Sergeant Mosconis, uh, he was able to tackle the guy who panicked. And, and then they had to put together a rescue team for me because my, I, I couldn't fire my rifle anymore. I changed magazines. And then I, said, I saw the way I was, the blood was spurting out of my shoulder. And I said, "I'm dying. This is, this is it. At age 19, this is my life. Uh, it's over. I hadn't even really been with a woman, uh, you know, or anything like that. I mean, you know, this is all over. So uh, I said the Lord prayer, and then I started cursing. And then somebody yelled, Scruggs.' I found Scruggs, and they they came and got me." As they came and got me, they were sh- the North Vietnamese were shooting at my rescue team. They, they were shooting back too, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I, got, I got out of there and <clears throat> the army poncho that I put behind my pistol belt stopped a piece of shrapnel that probably would have broken my spine right in half. It was the size of a golf ball, but I got shrapnel throughout my leg, right leg, buttocks, uh, and right shoulder. Uh, I was kind of an out-of-body experience. I was kind of like rising up, looking at myself down there. And uh, and that's when I got rescued. I got some morphine and started singing, leaving on a jet plane. I was totally stoned, and uh, <laughs> a couple of months in the
1: hospital, recovering, and they sent me back to my unit. But you had another really close call that affected you. January 21, 1970. Yeah,
0: yeah, it affected uh, everybody. We were all—it uh, was out of control. So some guys were unloading a uh, a truck with our um, eighty-one millimeter rounds, and uh, all of a sudden there was this big explosion, and we said, "She's." god so i I grabbed a couple of bandages and i ran there and uh here are these guys like 12 guys i mean brains intestines arms legs they're just and they're on fire said jesus so uh uh everybody chipped in and uh because the truck was on fire, I mean, we all could have been killed. And, uh, but, you know, we were not going to run away. So uh, we got fire extinguishers and put the guys on stretchers, and uh, I think they all died. It was a, a really tough day, my worst day of my life. And, uh, and because of that, I think I developed the post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I'm sure I did. It would be abnormal not to. <laughs> Everybody else I've talked to who was there that day, they can't. They, they tear up when they talk about it.
1: They're tearing up, too. Tear.
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. And uh, so I became finally got out of this Vietnam thing, and I had a few more battles after that. In May, they had Kent State, and that's when on this mall, on this place that we are standing right now, there were tens of thousands, tens of thousands, maybe 150,000 people crawling all over this mall, end the war. And I, at the time, I was like a security guard. And uh, so, uh, so somebody said, you know, he says, when I earlier went to protest, everyone was doing the peace sign like this. Now everyone's shaking their fists. They, they want to fight, you know, some of them are arming themselves. And uh, I just didn't like what was happening to the country, uh, and uh, it was just a very difficult time. And for the me and other Vietnam veterans, I mean, a, a, lot, a lot of you know women would say, "Oh, I got just got back from Vietnam or something," and they would say, "Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you." <laughs> you it was know, a stigma. The stigma. I mean, Lieutenant Calley and
1: and all of that. And people could not separate the war from the warrior. Have you ever thought back that you survived the incident in 1970 for a reason?
0: Yeah. Uh, I've thought that. And, uh, maybe I did. Uh, I'm not, not a really church goer, but uh, I believe in God and Jesus, et cetera. and, And, uh, I don't know whether God gets that much involved in what goes on here, but you know, maybe he does. But it really did feel to me that there, as I was floating over my body, I really felt that there was was something going on, something bigger than me. And it really took me a year or so to get over this whole Vietnam thing, and I just couldn't just start and have a normal life.
1: It just wouldn't work for me. But you, you met somebody, fell in love, and
0: yeah, I met somebody in at a, a 7-Eleven in uh,
1: in Riverdale,
0: Maryland, and uh,
1: in the middle of the night, right?
0: Yeah. What's yeah. that like? Well, you know, you Not have to understand when you're, you know, 21 years old and you got long hair and. A, motorcycle and you were a cool guy and all the women talk to you and uh, you know you're a cool guy so uh, uh, I, I used to stop at that 7-Eleven sometimes just to kind of meet women anyway so uh, but I met this woman and uh, her name was uh, Becky Fishman was her name she's Jewish uh, you know I'm not but uh, and uh, I don't know I just kind of fell, fell in love with her and she fell in love with me and we've been together since age 21 I uh Eventually got myself uh, in, into American University and there I became an expert on what is now
1: called post-traumatic stress disorder. You and your wife went to the movies. <laughs> and it changed your life, I think it's fair to say, right? where did you go to see? Yeah.
0: We went to see The Deer Hunter with uh, Robert De Niro, and you know, very sort of kind of a war movie. But it kind of shows that going to war is like playing Russian roulette. I mean, it really is. You can be a clerk and getting blown up, or you can jump behind enemy lines 10 times and never get a, a scratch. Uh, and we, so when I came back from that movie, I said, I really couldn't sleep. And uh, I just thought and thought. And uh, that night I uh, decided I was going to build a, a national Vietnam Veterans
1: Memorial. <laughs> you just decided. Yeah. 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 Now that's chutzpah.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> it would have names on it. <clears throat> so I called my boss and said, look, I need some time off. And I was a GS-7 at the Department of Labor. I was an investigator for the uh, Office of Investigation and Compliance. So uh, I said, look, I, I may need a couple of weeks off. because I'm going to build a national memorial in Washington, D.C., And he said, Scruggs, you know, we all need a mental health day here. And it looks like you do need two two weeks, but, you know, this sounds a little crazy. So I took the two weeks and I I put together a plan using the ideas of Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a psychiatrist who studied with Sigmund Freud and they split because Carl Jung had a, a deep spiritual belief One of the things that we share as a value, even during the Vietnam War, especially after a few years after it's over, is people who lay down their lives for their country. They this is what more can you ask of a fellow citizen? Everyone so I said, look, I said, therefore I can build a memorial with names. Put the names up there that the, the idea itself will draw people to give money. So there was some theory behind it and uh, and I decided to do it and hired a lawyer and had a press conference on May 28, 1979.
1: And you were largely ignored at that point?
0: Largely ignored, but I was able to stimulate an article on Associated Press and uh, UPI at the time And uh, the article, you know, got out there and picked up by local newspapers. And then July 4th, uh, a reporter from AP called me up and asked me how much money I'd raised. I figured I needed about a million dollars. And I said, well, I raised $144.50. And he laughed. He said, oh, yeah, that's very good. uh, It's really funny. Uh, I'll get back. Let me get back to you if you have any questions. So he wrote this story, and it's
1: all over. It's on the CBS Evening News. People were laughing at you. They were laughing at me, yeah. And, uh, now, now, let me stop you. Yeah. How does it feel, first of all, beyond the Vietnam aspect of this, which is very personal to you, how does it feel to have the country laughing at your dream? I, I was just glad for the publicity. You
0: know, it looked like something good could come out of it. Uh, I wasn't depressed by it. So uh, what happened was uh, a military veteran, a graduate of West Point, called me. His name was John P. Wheeler. He was a graduate not only of West Point, but of the Harvard Business School and Yale Law School. This guy is really smart. And (laughs) I mean really smart. IQ is off the charts. And uh, so he said, look, let's sit down and... Let me bring some guys in. So he gets all these guys from West Point who went went to the Harvard Business School. They said, okay, let's turn this into a Harvard Business School problem. What do we need here? We need site. We need design. We need legislation. We need to pass the legislation. And uh, so we just played like this is a Harvard Business School problem. And uh, so we had a design competition, the largest one held in the history of Western civilization. Uh, and then that is a fact undisputed and uh you know, over 1400 entrants some were parts of a team and the winning design was uh avant-garde very avant-garde you know people expect curly cues and columns and you know soldiers this was a black granite wall of granite of, of,
1: of names And a lot of people who wanted to be supportive of the veterans hated it. Is that fair to say at the beginning?
0: Yes, and a lot of veterans hated it as well. And uh, a guy named Jess, James Reston just wrote a book on it called "A Rift in the Earth." So this became a civil war between the Vietnam veterans. I mean, we said you've got to, we have to separate the war from the warrior, and they said we need to honor. You know, they were very much in favor of the Vietnam War. They they felt that they could only be honored if the war was somehow cleansed by the memorial. So, I mean, I thought their position, I certainly understood it, but it didn't resonate with me. So we had to fight these guys and they had unlimited, virtually unlimited amount of money and almost unlimited political access. So uh, we go to war with them and, uh, you know, we're in the media and writing articles I'm writing in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and there are press conferences, they have press conferences, we have press conferences. More and more VIPs get involved, General Westmoreland's involved,
1: George McGovern's involved. Now, you you think about that. For those who aren't old enough to remember, Westmoreland and McGovern could not have been more opposed philosophically. You're correct. And they supported your efforts, both of them. Yes, and they s- supported the design too.
0: General Westmoreland, uh, you know, he said, look, the basic thing is there's no better stone than, than this that's the black granite that you're using for this. Because of that, it'll have a mirror like effect. You can see your own face in it, and the names can never be erased. If you ever go to an old cemetery, you can't see the old guys from 100 years ago? That's because marble disintegrates with UV. This stuff never disintegrates. This is granite. It's actually called gabbro, which is one stage beyond granite. it comes from India.
1: You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What was the toughest part of getting this, build, this wall built? Uh,
0: we, uh, <clears throat> we had some very tough, determined—I don't think we do it today, by the way, with you know, Twitter, and Twitter and all that—very tough, determined <clears throat> people against us. Uh, and uh, basically, we had been outsmarted. The entire thing was going to fall apart. It, it was a terrible time, because at the very end, it was March. 1982 okay we played by the rules we got the approvals we have the money in hand we can break ground we come to get the uh the build uh, construction permit a guy named tom Shaw. he goes to the uh assistant secretary and says well i'm here to get some construction permit he was a white house fellow at the time I said, well, you should understand that uh, the Secretary of the Interior has received 22 phone calls this morning from congressmen, angry, insisting that this permit not be given. So this guy said, during the Reagan administration, he said, well, what you need to understand is that the president of the United States wants this memorial built, which wasn't true. I said, we want the construction permit, we want it now, and I'm not leaving. And if you want to escalate this thing, we'll do it. He was bluffing. They gave him the permit. <laughs> Total bluff. Yeah, I came out here with some guys and some bulldozers, and I said, just dig holes, make this thing look like a B-52 raid, this whole area here. And that's what they did within, within days. I had them here just drugging, screwing things up so they couldn't stop construction, because these guys were threatening to stop construction before we got you know, the panels up.
1: When you first envisioned this, when you first began to play with this particular design, how did you think people were going to be affected by it?
0: By the design or the memorial? By both. Well, I knew the design was going to be a huge public relations problem because it's avant-garde, it's untraditional. And uh, so, what the hell, it was affordable. It did have all the names there. And this is what we ended up with. We had a competition, so I had to fight for this design. So, uh, but it, it, it was obvious to me that The people who selected this for us, these jurors, knew that that this would have a unique and very touching emotional value to people who came to see it, that they would become part of it. Nice monuments like Iwo Jima, you have to get back to really enjoy enjoy it. This one, you gotta go up to it and touch it. That's the difference. So uh, I was convinced it would be a great work of art. But you know, it wasn't my job to create the world's greatest work of art, just trying to get a memorial built. If something else would have been
1: picked, I would have been behind 100%. After all, I mean, if you go back to 1979, most people wanted to forget about Vietnam. Yeah. (laughs) So maybe your first great achievement was forcing the country to remember.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I met with a woman, Helen Hayes, if you remember her, very big in the theater. And she, would, she said, you know, I just—I was watch, living at home in San Francisco, I was watching the dedication of the Vietnam veterans memorial, Jan, and all of a sudden I felt like something had been lifted off of my shoulders. So uh, it had a cleansing uh, effect. I just wanted a monument with names on it of the fallen. And uh, because, you know, I carried him through the jungle. I saw their mangled bodies and put them in body bags. And this was tough. Nobody cared. Everybody was angry at the war, angry at the military, angry at the veterans. And it was a crummy time. So I wanted these casualties to be remembered, but also the guys who, you know, and women who just came back and uh, got on with their lives or got into trouble. A lot of people, a lot of veterans took their own lives. A lot of them are dying from Agent Orange. And Veterans Day and Memorial Day, we have thousands and thousands of people right out here. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, it gives me a lot of pleasure uh, to see them together. The, the veterans tend to embrace one another, their hand on their shoulder, and talk about the, the name.
1: If- you don't have the experience in Vietnam that affects you greatly, yeah. wounds you, affects you psychologically. If you don't go to see the deer hunter that night, yeah, I mean, all of these things lining up, your life was fundamentally altered by a series of events yeah. and leading to you, you to this destiny. And I yeah. wonder if you see it that way.
0: Well, I know a friend of mine who's a, a medical doctor. He's a member of the Greek Orthodox Church he believes in predestination. You know, he believes that God puts things in your path for you to show the strength to, to make things happen. So he and some other people I've talked to see a spiritual uh, element to my life and my story here. And uh, I don't know, sounds good to me. I've had a lot of traumatic things happen in my life. Probably the most traumatic thing was uh, having rheumatic fever. And uh, that was probably around age 10. And uh, it hurt, uh, it hurt my heart. And uh, three times I've had something called endocarditis in which the bacteria invade your heart valve. I was dying, I was supposed to die. In uh, November, November of 2017, uh, on Veterans Day, I was in a coma uh, and uh, I was going to die. Uh, they told my wife to, uh, you know, within 10 days of me being in the coma, and said he's not responding to anything. And uh, so we, we think about just prepare yourself because we we think we're going to have to put him in a hospice. So, uh, you know, a lot of friends came over and prayed for me. Uh, some friends who were very devout Catholics and, of course, my friend, a medical doctor who's a Greek orthodox. So people prayed and... And all of that. But you see, even that, to un- understand, the reason I I basically got sick was I was so stressed out by, they were having the 35th anniversary of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and the people who run the Vietnam Memorial Fund, <laughs> they didn't invite me to anything. <laughs> you know, you can sit on the podium, like, you know, they dislike me, sort of. I think they, they, they want to kind of erase me a little bit. And uh, it's kind of sad, but I don't, you know, sometimes you see negative people in your life. Instead of engaging them, you know, just kind of walk away.
1: And how did the achievement of getting this, going through all the steps that you took, all the adversity, how did this affect you? Uh, Getting it done. I think it, uh, I couldn't believe
0: I pulled this off. I just... Couldn't believe it, it happened, and uh, <laughs> gave me a lot of confidence, and gave me uh, the ability to inspire people from time to time, you know, young people in the different groups that I talked to, and uh, uh, so it's, it's a good message from this that you don't have to be the top of the class, you don't have to be the best student, you know, to do something great in your community
1: or or or, or beyond that. I mean, what sort of satisfaction do you take out of the fact that you're just one guy, one seemingly average guy, who helped us deal with this psychological scar? Uh, I mean,
0: I'm overwhelmed by it when I think about it. And uh, I just feel lucky that the whole thing happened. The probability of success, my success in this
1: was probably one, one in a hundred. Why is it important for us to remember?
0: Well, you have, you have to understand basically there's uh, history can repeat itself. Uh, so. You, you can't forget people who gave their lives for their country, and uh, you can't forget to remind the nation's leaders that they should be very careful, very careful uh, before, you know, rattling swords and threatening people with warfare, because once you get into one, I mean, you're, it's a tar baby on your foot. and You just can't get out.
1: Let's, uh, let's take a, a walk up to the wall. Okay. So. I have to tell you, my uh, my first time here was in 1986. I came here with some. I was in town for a college journalism conference. I was here with some buddies. Yeah. And it was dusk. And I gotta tell you, I I have chills thinking about the feeling that I got out of it at that point. It affected me in a way I didn't expect, and I can't quite explain.
0: Yeah. Well, it's. uh that's exactly what it's supposed to do. As you walk down the memorial, you'll see what's happening. You ha- you're not, you won't understand it unless I explain it to you. As you go down, all of the cars you see walking by here, all of a sudden, they are. You can't see them anymore. All you can see is the names. They disappear, so you become part of this monument. We sort of morph into it a little bit. And uh, that creates a lot of emotions and uh, certainly does for the military veterans especially. Right now we have, here's a group of kids from uh, who knows where. They look about 16 years old. (laughs) All this energy.
1: When you saw the, the wedding wall, for the first time, the design. What did you think of it? Uh, I thought it was going to
0: take a lot of work to sell it. The artist, uh, the artist rendering was very fuzzy. It was actually made with watercolor. So there was not a lot of contrast between the colors. You know, it's a very light sort of color. So yeah, I could just, it was difficult to picture it. Uh, we made a 3d model of it to try to get people to better understand it because we started having we started getting phone calls within days from veterans in wheelchairs saying i can't believe you did this to me and uh, it personally affected people it did yeah they felt like god you know now you're burying us under the ground and and then and then the course starts you know black gash of shame and sorrow, people began using those kind of adjectives. And words matter, I mean, words change people and shape people's opinion. We're looking for 14 and 20, oops, yeah, 14 and 23. Ruggles, McCreary, Murray, we've got Roderick, Russell, Sainz, Steeza, It was awful, just a bad day. Kroger, oh, it was, I just can't tell ya. These guys, they were all on fire. They were on fire.
1: Is it still an emotional experience for you to come up here and put your finger on those names?
0: Oh yeah, I just remember these were great guys and uh, they didn't deserve this, but
1: it happened for,
0: as they say, it
1: happened for a reason. <laughs> and have you ever felt guilty that you came back?
0: No, if, if I didn't come back, then a memorial never would have gotten built. I mean, maybe somebody would build one one sometime. But I had a good sense of timing. I knew this would work. I had nothing to lose. It really should have fallen apart within three to four months. But I got lucky. I got my name out there took advantage, and then I I figured out, understood how to work Congress, work the press, make things happen. I I became very good at this stuff. That's what I ended up doing. So that's a guy, and the other guy, Van Andel. He was interesting. Just one of these interesting guys. He'd gotten wounded once, he'd gotten malaria once. (laughs) He had nothing but bad luck in, in Vietnam, and he was a funny guy. Anyway, I went to uh, Norfolk, Nebraska where he lived and he, uh, he was dating this girl before he left and uh, she became a very successful attorney. She wakes up the, the day he was killed. When there's a time difference between the US and Vietnam, she wakes up basically at, at like the same minute that it happened. Like the same minute. Or, you know, give or take an hour. And she claims, you know, he was
1: talking to her. Do you ever tire of the emotional baggage that you have to carry around as a result of the war and this memorial.
0: Uh, I don't do a lot of interviews. And, uh, yeah, I, I got pretty burned out after I almost died in 2017. I got excluded from this 35th anniversary and the organization I created is like, you know, I have nothing to do with them. Uh, that
1: upsets me. Does this cause you pain to come here? It does. It does, yeah.
0: Now I, I, I have a different life and I live in Annapolis and live on the water and everything's just fine with me. I can go anywhere I want. We have, we have a nice relationship. Great wife, great friends, I got everything I want right there. So somebody else can take care of the wall. If they ever need my help, they can they can certainly call me.
1: When you die, what do you want people to remember you for? Oh, just uh I'm the guy who started the Vietnam Venice. <laughs> but I mean, what do you want that to say about your life?
0: Uh, courage, confidence, the can-do spirit, persistence. And this was a guy who fought hard-headed and just kept fighting and fighting and fighting, and uh, <laughs> and won.
1: <laughs> you know, we're, we're we're standing down here at the at, almost uh, at the bottom of the memorial, and in the distance you could uh, you can see uh, the Capitol Go- dome, yeah. and the Washington Monument. Yeah, and in the winter, you'd see the Lincoln
0: Memorial because you wouldn't have the tree, all the trees. Right. Yeah. yeah. Why was it
1: important that it was right here?
0: The prominence of a site, of a piece of architecture, is related to the significance of the event, the significance of President Lincoln, you who know, uh, rallied the North to bring an end to slavery and into the Confederacy. Uh, he deserved to be there. And President Washington, who started uh, <laughs> or helped pretty much helped us win the Revolutionary War, became our first president instead of a king. He deserved to be there. The capital deserves to be there, and uh, these guys deserve to be there too, because uh, you know they uh, they did something other people didn't want to do, and they showed duty to their country and. Uh, This is where they deserve to be and this is
1: where they are and this is where I put them. Thanks to Lane McGiboney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.